All right, what in a couple more minutes we go. All right, so um, we're going to be talking some about worship today because this is kind of a worship sort of scene in chapters four and five. And so really, you know, just to kind of get us thinking about all this, you know, what do we think worship is? Is it just coming together and singing some songs? Is it uh, about something that happens in a specific place? Uh, is it more than that? Um, and what you know, and if worship is more than just singing, which, you know, that's, that's what I would argue. Um, why is singing still so important? You know, I know that's one of the big things I've missed through this, and it's been nice to at least have the songs that we can listen to, and maybe you've been singing along at home. Um, but we're going to see a lot of that in, in these chapters. So what makes uh, those things so powerful? So, uh, let's start in chapter four. I'll read verses one through the first part of verse six. After this, I looked and there in heaven, a door stood open. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and there in heaven stood a throne with one seated on the throne. And the one seated on the seated there looks like Jasper and Carnelian around the throne is a rainbow that looks like an emerald. Around the throne are 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones are 24 elders, dressed in white robes with golden crowns on their heads. Coming from the throne are flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And in front of the throne burn seven flaming torches, which are the seven spirits of God. And in front of the throne, there is something like a sea of glass, like crystal. Okay, so this is setting the scene. You know, we're seeing John uh, taken up into heaven somehow, or he's in the spirit, he says, experiencing all of this. Um, and this is kind of, in a sense, starting the story of, of Revelation. Um, and uh, he sees the one seated on the throne. That's his usual uh, name for God, instead of just saying God. And we know this is kind of a common Jewish way of talking that you wouldn't say, even just say God or use uh, the name of God, Yahweh, as a sign of respect. You kind of use terms like this, the one seated on the throne. Um, and I think we talked about this a little bit early on we talked about you know, symbolism and those sort of things but um you know does this require there to be a literal throne in heaven that god literally is sitting in um or really i think the bigger question is what does the throne symbolize what is it saying about god by describing god in this way as the one seated on the throne he's the one with all the power yeah, power, right? I mean, in their day, that's kings or emperors would have the thrones. And so that's that's their image, right, of, of someone who has power, who has control, authority. So um, that makes sense that you would talk about God in similar ways. I think this it points to a, a bigger conversation uh, that God is always revealed in ways that we can understand, right? Uh, and, and it's in the symbolic world of the original audience or the original writer, right? We don't have uh, many people on thrones today. So that metaphor doesn't connect with us quite as well as it, as it does for them, although we still understand it. Um, but right, God, uh, God is beyond us fully understanding, right? And language is always a little bit limited in, in expressing who God is or what God is or what God can do. And so, um, we don't want to get too stuck on certain metaphors and think that, that this one metaphor expresses the fullness of who God is. 
Um, they'll get locked into certain language, whether it's theirs or ours. But always see God is always more than what we can understand. That's what it means when we talk about God as, as a mystery. But it's still pointing towards uh, a deeper truth. That's the way that these symbols work. Um, so that's what we're seeing when it talks about these thrones here. So along with that, it talks about these 24 elders who also have their own thrones, uh, I guess, probably smaller sub thrones. Um, most people assume that the 24 here is a reference to both the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles. And it's more, again, the idea of representing them rather than uh, it necessarily being those specific people. Uh, and I think we had a handout early on. We didn't go over all the details of it, but the way that numbers tend to work in Revelation is it's more what do they represent than the actual number itself. So 12 in the Hebrew mindset is a sign of, of completeness. Right? And so we, we see that popping up a lot. And we'll see that a lot in, in Revelation. And we also have the symbol of the torches. Uh, and it says, this is one where he kind of explains, it's the, the spirit. Um, it could be the seven spirits of God or the sevenfold spirit of God, depending on how you understand it. Um, again, it could be taken more than one way, and, and it may not be that there's only one way to understand it. That's another way that symbols can function. So it could be the seven churches from before, right? So there he called uh, their lampstands or torches. Those represented each church. Or it could reference the, the Holy Spirit. And seven, uh, again, we probably know because it shows up so often in scripture is also a number that represents completeness or perfection or, or holiness and so it's almost um if i could make up a word you could say it's like sevenly right it's it's kind of this perfect perfection of, of spirit i i would take it more as the holy spirit because there's more than just those seven churches even though this is addressed specifically to them uh and then but we, we have this bigger question though, right? Of, of if God is the one who's on the throne, which means he has all power and authority as, as they'll sing in just a minute. What does that mean for my situation? What does that mean for the presence of evil in the world today that they experienced and we also experience? Um, really, I think the rest of the book is about answering that specific question. God is on the throne, but evil also exists. So how is God addressing it? Uh, but I think it's important that we start from this place of God, God's sovereignty or God's um, authority. Right? That's the starting place. We still have to deal with um, what's going to happen with evil, but we start with God first and foremost. Um, I think that's, that's good advice always, right? Start with God, who God is, and then we work to figure out what's going on in our world. All right, any other questions or comments on these first yeah, Chris. All right, Chris, Chris, yeah, uh, just right after that, it says and there was a crystal sea or something like a crystal mm -hmm. sea, yeah. And then in chapter 21, that sea is removed, that hmm. sea separating us from God, and now we're to be in His presence which I will have a great symbol. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Thanks, Dale. And I think there is this, what we see here, and then what we're going to see at the end of the book, uh, where is it, it moving? And this is something we'll kind of talk about. Is this all we should expect heaven to be, or is there even more that God's doing? So yeah, uh, the sea and what that represents. Uh, the, yeah, the sea is no more someday. There's even, even though this is, you know, beautiful and holy and, and 
uh, awe-inspiring what we read here. This isn't even the end of the story, which is, is great news. All right, let's get, continue on. Uh, this is the second part of verse 6 going into to verse 11. Around the throne and on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature is like a lion, the second like an ox, the third with a face like a human face, and the fourth living creature like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and inside. Day and night without ceasing they sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to the one who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, 24 elders fall before the one who is seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. All right, so again, we're just kind of setting the stage, right? Setting the this scene of the worship that's going on in heaven. And we're introduced to these four living creatures, which again, you try and picture them. It starts to look pretty bizarre. So it's more about what are they representing? And this is another place where, uh, as I mentioned early on, John doesn't like give scripture references to the Old Testament. Uh, I don't think at all through the whole book. And yet so many, almost all of his images are coming from the Old Testament somewhere. So this uh, image of the four living creatures comes from Ezekiel chapter one. Um, one theory as to what they represent is it's maybe the wholeness of all created beings, right? You have wild animals, domesticated animals, humans and flying animals. Uh, I don't know if that's, you know, that's not the only way to divide things up, but it's one possible way. Again, it's just saying all, all living things, all created things are part of this, this worship. And humans are exalted, but we're still creatures, right? We're not the creator. And so in one sense, we are on the same level as everything else because we're, we're creatures as well. Um, it talks a lot about crowns here. And in, in Greek, they actually had two different words for a crown, uh, that we only have the one, and they, they mean different things. So the ones they're talking about here uh, is more like a wreath, uh, Stephanos is, is the Greek term. Uh, this is what you would win like in a contest, it's you know a prize you could get. Uh, the other word is a, a diadem, which is uh, the sign of royalty. So this is not that, they're, they're given this um, Stephanos, which is what you win uh, when for doing something. And this idea of them giving them back to God uh, represents uh, kind of saying God is our benefactor. God is the one who gave this to us. And so we're blessing God. And I think, you know, it's, it's almost kind of funny. It's like God is giving them the crown and then they give it back to God. And I assume God gives it to them. It's, it's kind of this ongoing dance of giving and receiving between us and God. That that's God is blessing us and then we use those blessings uh, to bless God, and God blesses us. It's it's not a you do this, so then I'll do that for you. It's it's just kind of this self-loving, ongoing love, um, in a that kind of loving relationship. That's what should happen. I think that's how we should understand this here. And so there's singing, right? And I don't know about you, but this was kind of the assumption that I had. Uh, this is what happens in the afterlife. It's just being in God's throne room, and we just sing. Uh, all the time, forever and ever. Uh, I don't know if that's your expect expectation. Uh, there, are, you know, I can admit sometimes it doesn't seem like the most exciting thing. Um, even though I like singing, it seems like it might get old uh, in eternity. 
so again, this is a place where we see this is describing, in a sense, God now, what's happening now, uh, not things as they will be at the end of the book and uh, the new heavens and new earth, as, as we kind of already pointed to, Dale mentioned earlier. Um, so I think that's, and, and if you're part of my class that I did, uh, I guess it was last year, where we talked about, you know, the afterlife and all, uh, what comes next. Um, I think we can't, it can make this distinction between what's happening now and what happens in the resurrection and, and the new creation when, uh, you know, heaven comes to earth, as we see at the end of the book. Uh, in the specific song that they're singing there in verse 11, it is important to the situation that these churches are experiencing, the ones who are hearing about this vision. Um, it it seems like it's just kind of talking about, you know, God is great, but it's saying by recognizing God as a creator um, who sustains all things, right, because of your will they exist and were created, I, can, I think it's kind of saying um, creation itself is good and it has a good creator. And I think the implication is we can trust that this good creator is going to make sure it is good. And anything in it that's not good, he has the power and glory to be able to make that right. Because, again, that's where the story is going. And that's, that's an important message for them. Despite the evil that we experience in the world, we still trust that there's a good creator. All right. Any uh, questions or comments on that section? I, Chris, uh, I was just thinking there's something about there's something timeless about this. Uh, it's almost like they're setting us up to recognize that there's not this nicely uh, broken down sequence uh, that everything happens in. For example, they say, you know, they, they never stop praising God. Mm -hmm. They never stop the singing and the elders are constantly falling down. And yet we know <laughs> in the very next chapter, other stuff is happening. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it's just trying to break us out of this mindset that that we're stuck in because time is all we know, but God is timeless. And they even call that out that he was, he is, and he is to come. He's all of that. Mm -hmm. uh, so. Yeah, I think that's a good point, right? That we don't want to try too hard to like fit what every chapter into this chronology. Uh, it's, it's, yeah, this is ongoing. And, you know, if you push it too hard, it almost seems like they don't line up, but that's, that's not the way that this is meant to work. That's not how an apocalypse works. It's, yeah, it's showing, yeah, like I said, the, the kind of timeless quality of this, this worship. And so kind of taking each thing for what it means, even as we're seeing there is, uh, it's, it's going somewhere, right? All right. Anyone else? We'll keep moving. All right. On to chapter five. We'll read uh, one to five here. Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne, a scroll written on the inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So here we're introduced to this, this scroll, which is going to be really important for the next several chapters, um, the scroll and its, its seals. Um, and again, it's, it's kind of odd, right? It's got writing on the inside and out. Wouldn't you be able to read some of it if there was writing on the outside of the scroll? Again, it's, it's the, the image of it being full of all of this. 
Um, and these seals, you know, when you had a scroll or a letter, uh, that's kind of the way you would, would um, well, seal it, right? Um, you would put a stamp with wax in it. You would, so it's a sign both of protection. You have to break the seal to read it and ownership because uh, a king would imprint his symbol in it. And so, I don't know, like a modern take on this would be like, and I saw an email with seven passwords send, signed seven times. Um, that's, that's kind of the image here. And, but nobody can open it, right? It's these, there's so many seals. And, and so it begins to weep. And I think what this is, is pointing to is we weep when we don't know what God is gonna do to address the suffering of the world. Um, we ask, is there a purpose to all this? Is history going somewhere or is it just one thing after another? Uh, does God actually have good in store for us? Right? Leaving it unopened, if this scroll somehow represents the future and what's to come, if it's unopened, that means that there's no why for our suffering and there's no real direction to it. And so the question is, okay, well, who's gonna show us God's future? Who can reveal that? God wrote it, but God clearly intends for someone else to be the one who opens it. And so here, we're introduced to the uh, the Lion of Judah, right? This is a reference to Jesus. Um, and that's what he hears, right? This is going to be important as we go forward. He says, he hears that there is a Lion of Judah. So what, do you th what, what does that imagery say about Jesus calling him that? What, what kind of different images from scripture or just in general could that uh, be pulling, pulling out? The Lion of Judah, what, what is, what's the significance of that? Lots of power and authority. Okay, power. I wouldn't want to mess with a lion. And often, you know, a symbol of, of royalty. You see plenty of uh, kingdoms or kings will use a lion as, as uh, their symbol. I think for that, that has that connotation. Uh, it's also uh, kind of a Davidic image. Um, it's, we see that throughout scripture of uh, that's how the tribe of Judah is talked about. Jesus is descendant of David. And so it's, it's fulfilling that role because uh, David is also a mighty warrior. Uh, it's fulfilling a promise like from 2 Samuel 7 that God made to, to David. Uh, but yeah, overall, this, this power and might, right? a ferocious lion. And that in some ways fits the image we've seen so far, right? Jesus in the first three chapters, uh, we've seen him presented in a way that's very powerful and mighty. Um, and we're told that he conquered, but here's the key. We have to remember how he conquers. So let's look at the next couple of verses. And I think this is really central to understanding all this. Verse six, then I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, a lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne. So uh, I think it's important we hear what's going, we see what's going on here. What John hears and what John sees don't line up. Right? He hears about a lion, but he sees a lamb. And maybe that kind of resonates with our, our, our experience of the spiritual life that what we hear and what we see don't always match up. And uh, we have to figure out you know, which, which do we really need to listen to in this moment? Uh, do I need to focus on what I'm seeing? Um, or do I need to focus on what I'm, I'm hearing? It depends on uh, where that voice is pointing. 
But I think understanding the relationship between these two images of the lion and the lamb is actually a key to understanding Revelation. Because it's about how do we understand Jesus? Do we see him as a lion or do we see him as a lamb? Which one is, is primary? Um, and I've heard people say sometimes, well, when he first came on earth, he came as a lamb, right? Um, but at his second coming, that's when he'll be a lion. Uh, I don't see anything uh, that, that says that here. Uh, that goes in the wrong direction. The messianic hopes before Jesus is what? That he would be this powerful king. That he would come and he would kill all these pagans. And then we could have our, our kingdom of Israel again like we want. Um, but he came and he uh, gave himself out of love. His Jesus' life, death, and resurrection point towards the lamb. It's a full revelation. Uh, and the lamb is clearly central. Right? This will become, from now on, John's uh, preferred term for Jesus. 29 times you will refer to him as the slaughtered lamb. Uh, and never again will he call him a lion. Uh, now he still has uh, horns, right? seven horns. Uh, which is a sign of, of royal power. He has lots of eyes, which is a sign of, of knowledge. Um, and yet, he is the lamb first and foremost. The way Jesus conquers is by self-sacrifice. His victory and our victory, if we're emulating him, it may seem like a loss, but faith lets us see our, the true revelation. Right? What seems to be true and what actually is true, uh, they don't line up. Uh, but we see that, that self-giving is the path to victory. Because Jesus is willing to do this, that is what makes him worthy. Um, worthy to reveal this plan, as we're going to see in the next few verses. Uh, so how do we experience God's future and know where the story is going? By following the Lamb's example. So what do we, what do we think of this? Do we want Jesus to just be the lion sometimes? Um, where do we see this tension sometimes between between both of them? Well, actually, I see no tension there. Yeah. I see the full circle of power because true power is having the ability to dominate, destroy, overcome, accomplish. Well, I said accomplish, that's a good word. I'll take that one back. But True power is having the ability to do that and deciding there's a better way. I mean, that's that's like the the whole um, the peaceful. That's that's like what that's some good trouble there is what that is. Like when you are when you are able to be violent and you choose not to. So Jesus has all the power and all the authority. He could have called 10,000 angels, you know, that whole thing. You know that song? But he chose, he chose not to. And that shows, that shows a deeper power. Like that shows a, a confidence and self-worth that transcends what you can do and focuses on what you should do and what is the better way. All right. Yeah, thanks. Jesus shows the better way. Uh, do you have the power to let power go? Uh, is a, a phrase I've heard. I think Jesus is the one who does. All right. It's and so often it's us. We, we want to have that power. We want that authority. We're grasping for it. And that's why we so quickly turn to violence or anger or hatred, uh, because it's trying to claim that 
out of this insecurity. But yeah, Jesus, like you said, he knows he has all power and authority. So he doesn't have to be anxious about that or defensive about it. He's willing to let it go. And that, like as we see, is, is what changes the world and brings about uh, God's future. All right, let's uh, continue with this, this scene of universal worship here. Um, I think this is the rest of the chapter, starting in verse 8. When he, the Lamb, had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. They sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransomed for God saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests serving our God, and they will reign on earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels surrounding the throne and the living creatures and the elders. They numbered myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, singing with full voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature on heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them singing to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. That's powerful. Um, so we see here that the lamb's self-sacrifice is what makes him worthy to open this scroll and makes him worthy of, of worship. And I would say this is one of the most powerful scenes of worship in all scripture, the way it just keeps building and this and this and this and them. Um, the lamb deserves it as much as the one on the throne, right? You know, at this point, uh, the church, I think, was still working out the exact nature of what we now call the Trinity. Uh, but there is a sense of the lamb and the one on the throne are, are one. They're united here. You can see that pretty clearly. Um, and again, you know, he's, he's giving this image of um, this incense that's in, filling the throne room is our prayers. And if we were meeting in person, I would, I would have lit some incense for us to smell, uh, which again, it's not really part of our typical worship. Um, but, you know, even if you just have lit a, lit a, light a candle in your house, it's pretty amazing to see how quickly that, that little thing can fill up the whole room. You don't see it, but, but it fills it. And so I think that's uh, a powerful image for us to see this is what our prayers are doing. We may not be there, and yet through our prayer, we are joining uh, into heaven's worship. We are filling that space somehow. Right? I mean, that to me, at least, that's a comforting image to know that, that the words that I pray, uh, no matter what they are, are, are filling that space and being heard. And so it's, it's this, you know, as I talked about in the sermon, it's about inclusion, right? It keeps getting bigger and bigger. Um, it's for, for every tribe, language, people, and nation. And he calls them a kingdom and priests, which uh, priests, again, not really part of our uh, modern understanding very much, but uh, in, in their understanding, priests were kind of those mediators between God and other people. And so uh, that's our, our duty is, is uh, connecting people to God. Uh, but everyone is able to, to be a part of that role, not just a select few or select tribe. Um, and so this is the destiny, right? They will reign on earth. It's, again, something we get to at the very end, but this idea of, of a renewed earth, not just that our final destiny is to sing in heaven forever, but uh, to reign. And again, 
what rain looks like. We'll, we'll talk about that more as we go. But it just keeps going, right? There's more, more and more angels, more and more people, more and more creatures, um, right? This is what we see in verse 13. Every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, in the sea, all, all of them are singing. I don't know how fish and cows are singing, but it seems like they are. They're somehow worshiping. Um, I think this is showing that, that this new creation, that where, where all this is headed, is about all of creation. Um, it's not just about humans. Um, God created plants and animals. God said they were good. So why would God stop loving them? Why would God stop including them in this love? Um, so again, that's, that's the bigger picture that I think Revelation is moving towards. It's truly universal worship. Um, it's not just God plucking a few people out to, to come hang out in his throne room. It's, it's all things, all creatures coming together in, in worship of God, uh, because God loves it all, God created it all, and God wants to make all of it right. Um, when all is said and done, everyone and everything worships. So that's, again, it's like you could almost stop there, uh, but as we're going to see, it's now it moves into, okay, but what do we do about what's going on, and what is going on? Can we see that clearly? All right, so uh, anything else that you notice in this, this final worship scene here? Anything stand out to you as we're wrapping up? All right, well, thank you all for joining us. Uh, you know, uh, worship is, it is this, it is this, you know, being in God's presence and singing songs like this uh, or hearing things like this. Um, and yet, you know, I remember uh, like when I, when I was taking a class on the Psalms and it has, it has a lot of this sort of language too, right? The, the trees will clap their hands and, and, you know, all the beasts of the field will praise God. It probably doesn't actually mean that cows are going to be singing praises, but by being who they're created to be, they worship God. And so uh, maybe that's my, my charge to you as we close, uh, that you go and be who God created you to be in, in that that is in some sense worship and that is praise to our creator. So have a blessed day. Thanks for being with us.